Hello and welcome to episode six of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your delinquent host, Mike Waller. It's great to be back in front of the mic, and I want to start this episode by apologizing for such a long delay since my last episode. My youngest kid came back from summer camp with some sort of non-COVID, non-flu, non-strep superbug that took him out for a week, and then it lurked around the house long enough to take me down for a good eight or nine days. I had a fever when I should have been prepping content, and I couldn't talk for more than three to five minutes without coughing when I should have been recording. And then on top of it all, we moved my oldest off to college for the first time, so it's been a week, and I appreciate you staying with me. Before I got sick, I was starting to jot down my thoughts about the Field of Dreams game, and given that this is a one-time event, at least for several years, I still want to revisit those thoughts even though a little more time has passed than I had intended. I grew up in a very pro-Kevin Costner and an extremely pro-baseball movie house. I've mentioned before that I grew up in Iowa, so it was really cool back when Field of Dreams was being filmed and released. It's not my favorite baseball movie, but it certainly has its place, especially for nostalgia. It was, however, definitely a favorite of my parents. I'm not sure if that was because they really thought it was the greatest or if it was some sort of a stoic Iowa pride thing, but they definitely loved it and they could never scroll past it when flipping channels. My mom passed away in the spring of 2021 after a long run of health issues, and my dad fell back into sports for the first time in a long time after a long run of caretaking. He was really excited last year when he heard about the Field of Dreams game and he sent me any number of links and articles about the lead-up to last year's Yankees-White Sox tilt. I tend to have a busy schedule given our family of five, so I'm often watching the last part of a game or recording it and starting it later, but Dad was really hoping I'd watch the game live, and this time things worked out. There are a lot of ways that we become fans. We might go to a game, or we might meet a player, or we might watch a team on TV. There might be a hot jersey that we like, or a superstar we hear about all the time. Sometimes we pick up the teams from our parents, the teams our parents liked, as my kids have, at least with the Cubs. But my parents found their teams largely the same way I found mine. Who can I see on TV? Both my parents grew up in homes that enjoyed sports, and they grew up in an era where the Yankees were almost always one of the top picks for the weekly TV games of the week and were almost always in the postseason. My parents started following the Cubs because I had the games on so much, but they always kept their affinity for the Yankees. I've never really had any special feelings for the Yankees. Sure, that 90s to early 2000s dynasty was really impressive, and Derek Jeter led a pretty likable crew, but since then it seems I like them less and less every year even with or maybe because they now have Anthony Rizzo. I had to hold my tongue back in the day when the Cubs traded Starlin Castro, who was then my oldest kid's favorite player, to the Yankees, and my mom said, well, at least he's a Yankee, that's good. So it was pretty special for my dad to get to watch the Yankees in that game, and he was really excited when they announced the Cubs would be coming this year. Unfortunately, my dad never got to see it. He passed away this spring, right around the same time my mom passed the year prior. So this year's game had all the feels and tugged at every heartstring for a couple of really big reasons. One, of course, I'd love to play catch with the old man again. That kind of goes without saying, and it's the underlying theme of the movie. And as a parent, my oldest son has always loved baseball. My middle son played for a while. My youngest son still plays today. But my oldest son played. He's a pitcher, and we always got out to throw, play long toss, build his arm up. And he just wrapped up his high school playing career a couple months before this year's game. So that was pretty special. One thing they do very well with the Field of Dreams game is they play up the sap and they play up the nostalgia. We can't take that stuff every day, but, you know, once a year, even the most cynical of us, I think, find that to be, you know, kind of a refreshing bolt of joy. With my dad recently gone and my oldest moving to a new phase of life, it brought home a lot of sweet and bittersweet memories, particularly the discussion of the upcoming project to build youth fields, which took me back to so many weekend baseball tournaments over the last several years with my son. But I really enjoyed the game. Fortunately, I still have my youngest playing, so I'm not walking away from that phase of my baseball life just yet. 
thank you for that indulgence as I walk back through my thoughts on the Field of Dreams game. I really wanted to talk about that, even though it's no longer really so timely. But getting back to the Cubs of today, you know, since my last episode released on August 9th, the Cubs are 9-5 and five and have been playing much better baseball. They've had some really good starting pitching, some gutty bullpen work, especially considering how many top relievers were traded at the deadline. And they've shown a scrappy offense that has battled back more times lately than the Cubs had earlier in the season. Overall, the Cubs are 18-13 and 13 since the All-Star break through the doubleheader split with the Cardinals on Tuesday. I've talked a lot about how the Cubs had to answer questions this season. I've also given my thoughts on the good answers and the bad, but what we've seen over the last month to six weeks is the Cubs actually acting on those answers. The Cubs have released Ildemar Vargas, Jonathan VR, Andrelton Simmons, and Daniel Norris, among others. They've announced that Jason Hayward will not play the rest of the season and will not be part of the 2023 team. Other players are still around, but are in the minors or playing less in the majors, like Frank Schwindel, Alfonso Rivas, Rafael Ortega, and Jackson Frazier. The guys stepping up to fill those spots, players like Nick Madrigal, Fran Mil Reyes, and Brandon Hughes, among others, are showing some spark. Madrigal in particular was dreadful early this season, but he's coming off a major injury in 2021 and didn't feel healthy before sitting out with still more injury troubles this season. He's come back healthy and confident in his legs and showing in his performance. In the second half, he's posted a 720 OPS with a 330 WOBA, which is weighted on base average, and a 112 WRC+. It's a small sample size for sure, but it's very much in line with what Madrigal did with the White Sox in 2020 and 2021 prior to getting hurt. The Cubs have continued to make additions and subtractions all season. Since the season started, they've added several guys from within the system, but from the outside, they've brought in Luke Farrell on a minor league deal, who will start Wednesday against St. Louis, claimed to pitcher Kervin Castro from San Francisco and snatch Fran Mil Reyes off waivers from the Guardians. The Cubs continue to look everywhere for available talent. Reyes, in particular, has been great with the Cubs since they picked him up on August 9th. He has always been an above-average hitter with the Padres and Guardians since he came up in 2018. He's a power batter with 37 home runs in 2019, 9 in the shortened 2020 season, and then 30 last year. He has a career 113 WRC plus and posted a 125 WRC plus last year. He struggled mightily in the first part of this season before Cleveland put him on waivers, but since coming to Chicago, he's posted an 864 OPS and a 134 WRC plus. As a reminder, Fangraphs WRC plus tracks very closely with Baseball References OPS plus, which is currently 136 since Fran Mill came over to the Cubs. Hopefully he's relaxing and the Cubs have found some things to tweak because he's the kind of hitter at 27 years old that you just can't often claim for nothing in August. Every one of these changes is designed to try to put the Cubs closer to their next winner than they were the day before. Bit by bit, inch by inch, you want to get better. The season of answering questions has now matured into the season of raising the floor. For all that I will discuss in the next few minutes, do know that I realize how hard this game is. I played it through high school and was a failed player there. Everyone, if they play long enough, hits that level that's just beyond their capability. For some kids, that's Little League. For others, it's high school. For some, it's college ball or pro. Even the elite of the, the elite, the Hall of Famers, hit that point where they can no longer catch the fastball or can no longer get hitters out on their best pitch. Every player I've mentioned that isn't cutting it or anyone I mentioned wanting the Cubs to move on from is truly an elite baseball player. The worst player in Major League Baseball is in the top half percent of baseball players in the world. So how do you improve a team when there are no available free agents and you can't make trades? You raise the floor. As you upgrade talent, you remove players who are struggling or sometimes who simply aren't good enough to continue to compete. 
it's one thing to look at a bad baseball team starting rotation, for instance, and slot guys in numbers one through five. But that doesn't mean the number three starter for the worst team in baseball is actually a number three starter. Kyle Hendricks started opening day for the Cubs over the past couple seasons and has probably been considered the Cubs' number one, but he's a long way from being a true number one starter in the vein of Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, or Shohei Otani. The worst player on a bad major league team probably isn't a major league player at all. When people use wins above replacement, war, they're talking about how much better or worse a player is than a player the team could pick up for nothing more than the league minimum salary. We're talking about minor league free agents, 4A players who haven't been able to stick in the majors and hit the waiver wire just about every day, players who are not special and are readily available. If a major league baseball team cut their entire roster tomorrow, they could assemble a team of replacement level players. Such a team would be expected to win about 48 to 52 games, depending on which war measurement you use, meaning that last year's Baltimore Orioles and Arizona Diamondbacks were basically replacement level teams, winning 52 games each. You need to add talent while removing the bottom. It'd be kind of like Jenga if you weren't intentionally trying to keep a base in Jenga. This year, by war, the Cubs' five worst performers have been Jonathan VR, Frank Schwindel, Jason Hayward, Andrelton Simmons, and Michael Hermosillo. Zach McKinstry is close, but he has a very small sample size in Chicago. The other guys with negative war this year are Alfonso Rivas, Narciso Crook, who only got four games and nine plate appearances with the Cubs in the majors, so that's an exceedingly small sample size, and Jackson Frazier. Of all these guys mentioned, only one, McKinstry, is currently on the Major League roster. Other than McKinstry, who the Cubs just acquired in a trade with the Dodgers for Chris Martin at the trade deadline, the next four players with the lowest offensive war currently in the Cubs organization are Nick Madrigal, and as noted earlier, he's been playing much better after coming back from injury, David Bodie, who's currently injured, P.J. Higgins and Fran Mil Reyes, who has also been playing significantly better of late. When you look just at this season, the Cubs have raised their offensive floor from VR, Schwindel, Hayward, Simmons, Hermosillo, to McKinstry, Madrigal, Bodie, Higgins, and Reyes. Jed has made the offensive floor better and younger at the same time, mostly on the fly. When Theo Epstein came in and started his rebuild of the Cubs system, he had to do a complete and absolute overhaul. The Cubs minor league system did not have a lot of talent and certainly did not have depth of talent, and the Cubs did not have effective scouting, analytics, or player development systems they needed to win. The Cubs spent a couple of years signing moderately priced free agents and making deals at the deadline to try to fill the system. He made some fantastic trades, the best surely being sending starting pitcher Scott Feldman and catcher Steve Clevenger to the Baltimore Orioles for a couple of struggling young pitchers, guys by the name of Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope. Arietta would obviously go on to pitch a couple of no-hitters, win a Cy Young, and put up one of the most dominant calendar years of pitching I've ever seen, while Strope just became one of the best cub relievers in team history. Theo needed deals like that because he had to lay the foundation, build the floor, and then build everything else on top of it. It was an amazing run of first-round draft picks. Javi Baez, who came before Theo joined the Cubs, Albert Amora, Chris Bryant, and Kyle Schwarber, who helped put the Cubs on over the top in 2016. And the last pick in that run, Ian Happ, hit the major leagues just after the 2016 championship. Jed took over for Theo Epstein after being Theo's general manager for years after the 2020 season. I'm certainly not going to defend everything Jed Hoyer has done, but the core philosophy he talks about often is sound. You want to stack good decisions on top of good decisions. Good decisions can be cuts, they can be pickups, they can be trades, they can be draft choices, etc. Nobody gets literally every one of these right, but the goal every time is to make the organization better. With Jed now in charge, the goal was clear. The years of contending and making deadline deals had greatly reduced the overall depth of the farm system. 
On top of that, since the Cubs were mostly winning from 2015 to 2020, they no longer had high draft picks and hadn't drafted as well. The Cubs needed to draft better and develop better in order to maintain the type of farm system a long-term major league winner needs. Look at teams like the Dodgers. Even though they can spend a ton of money, they're able to support that by constantly rolling up young arms and other players who are cheap in in their early years. The Cardinals are another example. They don't spend like the Dodgers do, but they always seem to have a handful of young guys that come up and supplement the roster and help them win. It became clear that Jed and the rest of the front office was focused on rebuilding the farm, resetting that foundation for everything else. The Cubs had completely overhauled their pitching infrastructure in 2019 when they brought in Craig Breslow and company to build out the Cubs pitch lab. Over the next few years, the Cubs have added a lot of technology, a lot of minds, and a lot of quality coaches throughout the system, and it seems to be paying off. If there was a big criticism of Theo Epstein, it was that while the Cubs were surging and they brought up a nice long run of quality bats, they really didn't bring up much pitching at all. In fact, one of the biggest drains on the farm system during the almost precedented run of Cubs success was having to trade away the system's depth in order to keep the pitching staff afloat. Glaber Torres for Aroldis Chapman, Jorge Soler for Wade Davis, Dylan Cease and Eloy Jimenez for Jose Quintana, Heimer Candelario and Isaac Pardes for Justin Wilson and Alex Avila. None of those trades were bad deals at the time they were made, and some of them I'd make again a million times over. Yes, even the Quintana trade that the Cubs have clearly lost in retrospect. Well, maybe I wouldn't make that one again, but I agreed with it at the time. But as a combined whole, that took a really good handful of depth out of the Cubs system at a time when the Cubs were not producing enough to replace it. It's normal for a top-level farm system to fall in the rankings as prospects graduate to the majors and some depth is used for trades, but the Cubs went from the top system in baseball in 2015 to add or near the bottom of baseball by 2020. That's just not good enough. There are three goals of a farm system, really, and ideally a team would be drafting and developing enough talent to cover all three areas. The first one, obviously you want to develop contributing major leaguers and ideally some all-star level talent. These guys who come up, they're often cheaper assets when they first come up, and you, if you can identify the right guys, you can work on extending them early to lock up costs so that eventually they become your more expensive talent and leadership, and in some cases, the face of your franchise. This is one thing that never really clicked during the Theo era. The young talent came up, got progressively more expensive together, and then mostly left at the same time. Ideally, you keep some and transition some out to make room for signings, trade targets, or the next wave. The second area is you want to develop enough talent in the system that there are players, ideally better than replacement players, to supplement major league depth and help plug injuries. Think of the players that spend the season shuttling back and forth between the majors and the minors, in this case between Chicago and Des Moines. In some cases they shuttle because they're not good enough to stick, but in other cases it's just a numbers game and they need to cover an injury and then go back down. It's not about necessarily every prospect becoming an all-star or a Hall of Famer. You want to produce productive major leaguers or guys that can be productive major leaguers in the spot when you need them to. You also want depth to trade. You know, I talked earlier about the Cubs making so many trades. Making those trades is fine. It's not having more talent behind them to resupplement and rebuild that system after you make those trades. That was really the problem between 2016 and 2020. Look at the Cubs top 10 prospects right now. The Cubs have five outfielders. There will never be a day in Chicago when Pete Crow Armstrong affectionately known as PCA, Brennan Davis, Kevin Alcantara, Alexander Canario, and Owen Casey are all starting for Chicago. It's not going to happen. Of course, some guys won't develop. Somebody might get hurt. Others won't quite stick. But some are going to get traded. You you sort of pick your winners, pick who you think another team might be interested in to help you get another piece that maybe you don't have in the system. 
and you know that can be a big help. The Cubs are currently loaded with guys to the lower end of the system, which could prove really valuable this offseason if Jed goes out to try to trade for a starter or a power bat. Late in Theo's tenure, the Cubs did start to build up the system. The new pitching development infrastructure that began in 2019 started to show growth, and the Cubs started to draft better. But the bulk of the talent was in the very low minor leagues. The MLB pipeline top 30 for the Cubs did have Nico Horner, Edward Alzelay, Justin Steele, and Keegan Thompson in the top 10 at the end of 2019, as well as Nelson Velazquez and Christopher Morrell in the top 30. The next year, Horner and Alzelay were in the majors, but Steele and Thompson had fallen back, fallen back to the back of the top 30. Prospect rankings are very much an inexact science, which is yet another reason why depth is critical. One of Jed's first moves once he took over for Theo, whether it was entirely his idea or whether he was told by ownership to cut payroll for 2021, was to trade you Darvish to the San Diego Padres. He traded Darvish and backup catcher Victor Caratini for pitcher Zach Davies and four prospects. Shortstop Reggie Preciado, outfielder Owen Casey, outfielder Ismael Mena, and shortstop Gaysan Santana. All four players are still in the Cubs system. Casey's exploded. The recently updated MLB pipeline prospect list has him as the Cubs' current number 10 prospect overall. So that's one really projectable prospect. And even though the others haven't risen up through the system at this point, Preciado and Mena are still just 19 and Santana is 21. So there's plenty of time for those guys to develop. From that bombshell trade on, the rebuild was going. And it was abundantly clear the farm system was the first target. In 2021, the Cubs signed then 18-year-old shortstop Christian Hernandez, currently number six in the Cubs system, and catcher Moises Ballesteros, who's currently number 15 in the system. They drafted left-handed pitcher Jordan Wicks, currently number five. They drafted third baseman James Triantos, who's currently number 11. And they drafted left-hander pitcher Drew Gray, who's currently number 30 in the Cubs system. Beyond those guys, the rebuild got a turbocharge when they did what would have seemed unthinkable just a couple years before. They traded Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Javier Baez, along with Andrew Chafin and Craig Kimbrell. The Kimbrell deal brought back young major leaguers Nick Madrigal and Cody Hoyer, but the rest restocked the farm. Rizzo went to the Yankees for Kevin Alcantara, currently number three in the Cubs system, and Alexander Vizcaino, who was number 19 in the system last year, but never reported to spring training this year and reportedly is still at home in the Dominican. I'm not sure what's going on with him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's released after the season. KB brought back starting pitcher Caleb Killian and outfielder Alexander Canario. Killian is among the top starting pitching prospects in the system right now. He's number 14. He's the number 14 overall prospect for the Cubs. And Canario is a power-hitting outfielder at number 9 in the system. Canario has been amazing this year, playing across three, di three different levels and posting a combined 898 OPS with 31 home runs and 103 RBIs so far. Javi went to the Mets for maybe the steal of the deadline last year. PCA, who's currently the Cubs' number one prospect overall, is an elite defensive center fielder with plus speed. PCA is currently in AA, but has played at two different levels this year and posted a combined 907 OPS with 15 homers and 28 stolen bases. Andrew Chafin had a great year as the setup guy for Craig Kimbrell last season and was traded to the A's. The trade brought in outfielder first baseman Greg Dykeman, who had a brief stint in Chicago and a so-so run in AAA, and right-handed pitcher Daniel Palencia, who's currently number 19 overall for the Cubs. Palencia has really come on this season. He's hitting 102 miles an hour on his fastball with a ridiculous 94-mile-an-hour slider and a changeup that's sometimes unhittable. He's been in AA all year and has 89 strikeouts and 67 innings.
Building on those trades and international signings, the Cubs had what seemed like a strong draft this year, picking up pitchers with nine of their first ten picks. The, their first-round pick, Cade Horton, is currently number four in the Cubs system, and lefty Jackson Ferris, who was their second-round pick, is eighth. The Cubs' fourth-round pick, Nazir Moulay, is already up to number 23 in the system at the age of 17. This year's trade deadline brought back a couple more top prospects. The Yankees sent minor league starter Hayden Wesneski, who's currently number 12 for the Cubs, to the Cubs for reliever Scott Efros. And the Cubs traded right-handed starter Ben Brown, who's number seven overall right now, for David Robertson. For those who aren't counting at home, and really this is a podcast you shouldn't be counting, that means 16 of the Cubs' top 30 prospects were brought in after Jed took over for Theo, including nine of the top 10, all but Brennan Davis, and 13 of the top 15. Jed gets a lot of hate, and sometimes deservedly so, but that's an impressive build. The Cubs don't currently have a lot of top-level talent, just three of the top 100 overall in Major League Baseball, but the Cubs do have a lot of guys knocking on the door in the next 50 to 100 after that. The overall quality of the depth in the system can be demonstrated by the splash that Christopher Morrell has made this year, making the jump from AA as the number 21 preseason prospect and thriving. The Cubs have had a number of guys who weren't top prospects who have come in and pitched well, like reliever Brandon Hughes and Javier Assad, who started the win against the Cardinals in Game 1 of the doubleheader on Tuesday. The growth needs to continue. The Cubs team today is better than the Cubs team that opened the season and scuffled through the first half. They've improved in the margins by raising the floor through incremental moves and the development of young players. This offseason will be a chance to raise the ceiling of the team. Raising the floor is essential, but raising the ceiling is what truly moves a team to contention and beyond. This past season, the Cubs did raise their long-term ceiling from where they ended 2021 by signing Marcus Stroman and Seiya Suzuki. As Jed says, stack good decisions on top of good decisions. In addition to those signings, they made a number of other good decisions. They let Nico Horner play shortstop. They let Ian Happ continue to play every day in left field instead of moving him around defensively. They brought in Jan Gomes to lighten the load for Wilson Contreras at catcher, which has allowed him to DH and kept him fresher. They brought up Christopher Morrell and just let him play. They let Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson throw on the regular. Steele in the rotation from day one and Keegan in the bullpen until he was needed to start. They've both grown tremendously. Steele to the point where he's been a top 20 pitcher in the major leagues in terms of FIP at 246 and lowest hard contact rate at 21.6. He's truly pitching like a guy who could be a mainstay in a contender's rotation. The Cubs need to continue to build. Nico is already making the pitch that this team is starting to show prospective free agents that they're not far from winning. Cue the 2014 team that came on late and helped the Cubs land John Lester. Jed should be looking to land a big fish this offseason. The Cubs need an offensive upgrade, and this year a lot of the big gats are shortstops. I know Nico's playing a great shortstop and growing into a top-shelf hitter, and Nick Madrigal has been on fire lately at second base, but you can't look at those two spots and let those two guys prevent you from making a run at top talent. Get the most talent you can and figure out where to play guys after that. The San Diego Padres signed Manny Machado as a shortstop, even though Fernando Tatis Jr. was flying up through their system. Not a problem. Manny plays third base now. Go get Carlos Correa or Xander Bogarts or Trey Turner and shift guys around to make it happen. Maybe Correa or Turner or Bogarts play third. Maybe Nico Horner moves. Maybe Nick Madrigal becomes a DH bench bat, something like that. Just get the talent in and figure out where to play. Go get at least one starting pitcher, someone like Carlos Rodon, to fit in with Marcus Stroman at the top of the rotation and let the Cubs' current depth compete for the remaining spots. 
The Cubs have shown that they easily have five to six guys who can start, plus a few guys who are close to Major League ready. Every team needs to start every season with at least eight to ten guys who they think they who they think can start or fill long relief roles in order to win. Just look at the Dodgers. Their staff is loaded with guys on the fringe of the rotation or in AAA who could start somewhere for half of Major League Baseball. The Cubs' current rotation is, in whatever order, Marcus Stroman, Drew Smiley, Justin Steele, Adrian Sampson, and then Keegan Thompson's spot while he's out with lower back tightness. The Cubs will hopefully have Kyle Hendricks back next year, possibly bring Drew Smiley back, and the top prospects already mentioned, plus guys like Assad, Farrell, and DJ Hurst to compete. Adbert Alzale may find his way back from injury. If you bring in a Rodon, you've now slotted almost everyone down. Rodon, Stroman, Steele, Thompson, and Hendricks maybe become the top five, and then the others compete for the rest. You've raised the ceiling and the floor, and the pitching staff is now both better and deeper. Add two guys and you've done even more. Pitchers get hurt. There will be opportunities for guys like Killian, Wicks, Hers, Brown, and Wesneski to get their shots. It's far better to be deep with options. But if you look at where the Cubs are this year and where they were last year and where they hope to be next year, that number six, seven, eight guy is going to be a better pitcher next year than, say, Alec Mills was last year. No offense to Alec Mills. He's really filled in and thrown some great games. But you stack good decisions on top of good decisions. You build depth for seeding the Major League team, for supporting the Major League team, and for trading for pieces the Major League team needs. Thank you again for sticking with me through the missed week, and thank you for being a listener of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and give me a rating and a review at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. To be a part of the conversation, drop me a note at Cubs PS Plus on Twitter. Stay tuned in the coming weeks. I'm going to be bringing in some guests to discuss pitching and hitting development. I'm really looking forward to getting some new voices on this podcast. Keep watching this team for what it is. It's a group of players competing for time and trying to learn how to become a winning group together. Keep watching, keep cheering, and go Cubs!